you to think right now with me just of the first resurrection, the 120 followers of, Je- 120 followers of Jesus who are in the upper room, and they are filled by the Spirit as they are together waiting, filled with the Spirit, and then from being filled with the Spirit, seeing the first resurrection of Jesus, encountering everything about that moment, filled by the Spirit, then motivated by the love of God. Everyone say the love of God. Motivated by the love of God, they stumble out of the upper room and they begin to serve and they begin to minister in the culture in which they are a part of in such a different way where the whole culture is saying Caesar is Lord, they say Jesus is Lord, and they live as though he is king and they are living into a different kingdom. And it is so baffling to the world around them that the world takes notice and they do not turn the world upside down, but they turn it right side up. But they do it filled with the Spirit, motivated by love, and they see God do the impossible through them. And like any great relationship that first starts with butterflies and then over a few decades later, there's lots of things in between the butterflies and where you find yourself. What was once motivated by love can can become motivated by something other than love or different loves. Same heart to see change, but no longer from love. By a show of hands, please, when you look at the world, whether you're here or whether you're at home, when you look at the world today, how many of you can see at least one thing that needs to change? Can I see your hands, please? Well, here's what I want you to know. It is so important for you and I to be able to see not only what is, but what could be in Christ. Yet as followers of Jesus, the motive of why we want to see change matters. It matters deeply to Jesus. This happens, we see, uh, about 50 to 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus, there's a city named Ephesus, and the Apostle Paul says these words. They're famous, and he says it to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 12, he says, Be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. In other words, don't be strengthened by inferior powers. Quick results. Be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against people who see the world different than you do. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against the evil and spiritual forces in the heavens. The apostle Paul says to them, you're fighting the wrong enemy. And in fighting the wrong enemy, you're picking up the wrong weapons to fight this with. This was the challenge. And through the Holy Spirit-inspired clarity, the apostle Paul brings correction to the church when an us-versus-them motivation creeps in to the heart of the church. Because when this happens in any church, including ours, when we have an us-versus-them mind step, we, we stop living as Jesus lived in the world, and ultimately we actually become less resilient. If I kind of pulled you forward, I want you to see how Jesus, from love, calls out the same issues in now not a church in Ephesus, but churches in Ephesus. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 to 3 and 4 to 5, yes, we're in Revelation this morning. That was a joke, not very funny, but it was a joke nonetheless. He says these words, Jesus says these words, 
not to the culture, to the church. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Jesus is using the sandwich principle. Hey, all of this is good, but I have this against you. In all that you're doing, you're not doing it from a motivation of love. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. So Jesus says, watch this. He says to the churches now in Ephesus, Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent You see, for Jesus, it's not only that we need to see change in the world or what we see in the world is wrong. Once again, the motive of why we do what we do matters just as much to Jesus. One time I heard a preacher say these words, and I recoiled in my little skin. They said these words, fake it till you make it. Just fake it till you make it. And here's what I know. In the delay, what you desire to see, disciplines are really important. So I get it. Don't go by your feelings. But it's not true. Church, don't fake it till you make it. If you don't got it, get on your knees and say, God, would you create in me a clean heart, a heart of affection for the world around me afresh. Here's why Jesus has no issue whatsoever with our works, with our endurance, calling out evil, even testing various teachings. To Jesus, this is really important. But when we try to change the world using the weapons of the world, Jesus has a problem with it. Jesus calls us to repentance because if we abandon our first love, which is a love for God, and then loving God wholeheartedly, he gives us a love for other people, in particular those different from us. If we abandon our first love, then our source of our love is an inferior love. I think it's quite, quite powerful to see that when we fight against the culture outside of the love of Jesus, Jesus calls this a collective church sin. And he gives us two options. Repent or I'll remove your lampstand. Oh, you can call yourself a church, but my presence won't be there. Oh, oh, what options? Resilient disciples pay particular attention to the change they wish to see, yes, but also the source of what is driving their desire for change. Participating in a countercultural mission means that you and I as Christ followers like the first Christians in Ephesus and the churches in Ephesus. We serve as a faithful presence by trusting in God's power, not some other power, and then by living differently from the culture around us. Look at resilient disciples share as much consternation for what is wrong in the world. Here's what's supposed to be different about us as the church. Yet our conviction of what will bring healing and restoration differs from using worldly weapons. Oh, it's easy to shame people in the change. It's much different to serve people in the transformation. Loved ones, there's a distinct difference between being combative with the world around us and living like Jesus, which here's a little secret. If we live like Jesus, you is going to experience conflict. When you do, how you respond shows our allegiance and our affection of our true king. And 
few moments, Kofi is going to come and he's going to continue the message and he's going to clarify for us how Jesus counterculturally lived in the world and how the first followers, the first disciples of Jesus grew to be resilient as well. My question for you as we continue to engage our worship, our morning of worship and devotional teaching is how you doing with your first love? Has it grown cold or a little bit stale? The series that we've been working through for the past several weeks is all about being resilient disciples, how we can root ourselves in Christ and, and thrive in a broken world. And we just heard Pastor Jason speak powerfully on how we're called to live a life on mission and fight the right battles, to resist the temptation to get pulled into culture wars, and to remain steadfast in our first love. And along this vein, for just a few minutes, I'm excited to unpack with you a short piece of scripture that I believe is striking in its relevance for today as we are trying to be countercultural disciples. We're going to read from John chapter 6, starting from verse 66 down to 69 in the ESV. It says, after this, and don't worry, we're going to find out what the after this is. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We're going to unpack everything that led up to this moment, but if you just look at this brief exchange, you get a, a clear glimpse of just how well-rooted his core group of disciples were. That as all the people around them sort of dissipated and, and, and fell away, they were like, no, no, we're here. We're in this for the long haul. But in order for this scene to make sense, we have to back up and take a few moments to understand what had just happened. To understand what led to this moment where the crowd of followers around Jesus dissipated. Well, just a little while earlier, Jesus had performed one of his most extraordinary miracles. He had been ministering in the region, healing the sick. You know, word started to spread, word of mouth, crowds gathered, and soon there was a crowd of thousands. And he did something that, that absolutely boggles the mind. He was able to take some loaves and fish and multiply it to feed over 5,000 people. Now, I still sometimes try to think about how, like, what were the mechanics of that? How would that have worked? It's hard for my brain to wrap my mind around. It's this incredible miracle, but... In that context of an agrarian society that would have been familiar with famines and, and crop shortages and subsistence living, this would have been a miracle that would make you extremely popular. So it's no surprise that the crowd looks around and they say, all right, who wants to vote this guy king? And verse 15 actually says that. It says that he knew they wanted to take him away by force and try to make him their king. So what does Jesus do? He withdraws from the crowd. Now, just pause for a moment. This is a very sort of almost opposite thing of what you would expect. That at this moment of what would seem to be this high degree of success by worldly standards, Jesus pulls back. And it's because he realizes that they are there for the wrong reasons. Culture loves to celebrate people, to raise people up, to idolize people. Then they call them celebrities. And at first, that's what the crowd wants to do with Jesus. The crowds were quite happy to follow Jesus as long as 
He could make bread appear out of thin air. But Jesus was interested in establishing a faith that was sacrificial and not self-centered. The idea that they had of what this relationship would be was not something that he wanted to perpetuate. He wanted to establish a faith that was about service to others and not about just being served, about giving and not about taking. So to paraphrase a rather lengthy exchange, Jesus calls them out. He says, you're here because I filled your belly, but what I have to offer you is so much more than that. But they still don't get it because how they reply is to say, okay, well, there's this great prophet Moses, and he made manna fall from the sky, so Jesus, what kind of signs are you going to continue to do? But Jesus wasn't interested in empty popularity. If our faith only goes as deep as what we can get materially from Jesus, then it's not going to survive the trials of life. If that's as far as it goes as a relationship of, okay, well, well, what can I get from him? It's not going to be able to withstand all the challenges that we'll face. So Jesus had to challenge this. He wasn't interested in empty popularity then, and he isn't interested in empty popularity now. If we were using today's language, we would say, Jesus wouldn't have cared what his follower count was on social media. He wasn't chasing clout. He wasn't an influencer trying to gather as many likes as possible. Rather, Jesus further clarified who he was, even knowing that some were going to misinterpret it and walk away. He declares in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Powerful statement. And as the conversation continues, he goes one step further, and he says this challenging statement in John chapter 6, verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Oof, that's, that's, a, that's a tough one. And Jesus didn't misspeak. In fact, if you read that section between 53 and 56, he repeats this metaphor of flesh and blood four times, enough to make anyone uncomfortable. So culture does next what they always do and what they do best. They moved quickly to outrage and they tried to tear him down. You could say that they tried to cancel him based on his speech. They applied their limited understanding of the situation. They said, isn't this Joseph and Mary's son? Who does he think he is? Why is he saying that he's going to give us his flesh to eat? They got offended, and they walked away en masse. But how many of you know that you can't just cancel Jesus? Amen? Amen. Amen. The reality is that if we use only our cultural context as the marker of truth, and as the measuring stick by which we evaluate Scripture, we will always be led astray. We can't use what culture says and the trends of the day as our marker of what's true. Rather, if we want to be resilient disciples, we have to have a biblically rooted understanding of who God is, of what Jesus' mission was and what he's desiring to do in our lives. And then from there, we can take that and use that to challenge culture, to understand culture, and also to understand what we're reading in Scripture when we come to sections that we don't quite understand. Because even his followers didn't really understand what Jesus was saying in that moment. In verse 60, they say to him, this is a hard saying, Jesus. You know, it's like, please, can you maybe not talk like that? Can you maybe make this make sense for me? They had to uh, uh, question him and try to understand what he meant. But his disciples that stuck with him, they would be with him not that much longer. A little while later, 
as, as it's explained in Matthew chapter 26, in the lead up to the crucifixion, when Jesus would take bread and he would break it and say, this is my body that's broken for you. When he would take a cup and say, this is my blood that is shed for you. When he instituted the tradition of communion so that his sacrifice on the cross would always be at the forefront of the ongoing life of believers for all time. You see, Jesus was pointing to a faith that was rooted in sacrifice, not material gain. Seems to be a problem sometimes in, in contemporary thinking is that people can want to have a faith that's about material gain. What can we get rather than being rooted in sacrifice? So with those words that seemed very controversial at the time about eating his flesh, Jesus was really call, calling his disciples to a life of deep intimacy with him. He was inviting them to a life where they would be indwelt by the only one who would lay down his life for their freedom. Those disciples that stayed close to him would come to an understanding and, and one day they would be filled with the Holy Spirit as, as Pastor Jason mentioned at the beginning and have Jesus come to abide with them. So as we're desiring to be resilient followers of Jesus, as I'm coming to a close here, we can copy Peter's example that even when the culture around us rejects Jesus, that even when there's all kinds of voices out there speaking against the name of Jesus, we can say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Can I just say that we find ourselves in a culture that works very hard to undermine our confidence in the word of God. But we have to have a deep-rooted certainty that only in the pages of the Word of God will we find the truth of eternal life. There are not other sources. There's nowhere else that we can turn to. There's not some self-help book, some TV guru that can give us the words of eternal life. Only you have the words of eternal life. And then the second part of Peter's response where he says, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I love that. It speaks of this progressive relationship, that it starts with belief. But then as they're walking with Jesus, they start to have experiences with him that give them this certainty where they know deep down inside that he is the Holy One of God. You see, the disciples, as they walk with Jesus, they literally walk through storms with Jesus. And they watched him be the Prince of Peace in their lives. And that's the invitation that Jesus has for all of us to a deep relationship where we would walk with him, where we would spend time in his presence, where we'd spend time in the word and get to know him so that we can say with certainty, I know. And that's how I feel. I'm going to tell you straight, that's exactly how I feel, that sense of certainty that I know that he is the Holy One of God. So it doesn't matter what culture says, doesn't matter what the trends are or what kind of new uh, thing is on the news that might try to stand up against the word of God or against the name of Jesus. I'm able to stand in confidence. This kind of resilience comes from us spending time in the presence of Jesus. And we're going to go back into a time of worship. And I would invite you to just continue to connect with him. Resilient followers of Jesus are able to say, doesn't matter what the culture around me says, I know he's the Holy One of God. I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good. God bless you.